Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with an AEW edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back once again, and this show is tackling all things AEW over the last week. We will discuss a little bit of fallout from AEW and JPW Forbidden Door this past Sunday, and we're going to break down everything that happened over the last week across Collision, Dynamite, and Rampage. A ton to break down on today's show. We're not going to waste any time getting to it, so allow me to remind you, as I always do, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. You can leave a written review on Spotify. You can leave comments. The five-star ratings are the most important. But if you leave those reviews, we will read them live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, highlights, analysis, all of that good stuff. This week, of course, you get to contribute your thoughts to our WWE Money in the Bank pre- and post-show polls, both going down Saturday afternoon. And then... I would be remiss if I did not let you know. I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for only five bucks a month, you can become an official getting overhead. Dwayne Johnson had seven bucks. We're talking only five bucks. Head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash getting over and you get bonus audio news posts more than anything for that five bucks. You support us. Silver King Adam Silverstein, Vintage Chris Vanini and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We seriously hope you decide to join up. As promised, there is an absolute ton to talk about on today's show about AEW. I do want to give you just a little bit of a schedule update here at Getting Over before we get to that. Already in the books this week, your WWE Money in the Bank Ultimate Preview and your NXT Gold Rush Reaction Podcast both are in the feed. Of course, we're talking AEW today. We're coming back Saturday with your WWE Money in the Bank instant reaction as soon as that show goes off the air. And the plan for next week as of now is to do WWE on Tuesday, NXT on Wednesday, and AEW on Thursday. I did ask for feedback and a number of you provided it as to ways you thought we could rearrange our schedule. I loved the fact that you guys reached out and provided those ideas. Unfortunately, None of them were good. So this is the best that we have right now to go with this three schedule uh, format, this three show, I should say, I'm sorry, format for our schedule, but we are considering our options. One uh, person, one listener suggested, hey, Silver King, if you're going to do an AEW only show going forward, what about doing the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the last word? So it's parallel to your WWE show. The one reason I don't do that, and perhaps we could institute the main event. I can definitely look into doing that and maybe a last word. That would make sense. But the main reason we don't do the good, the bad, and the ugly for AEW is because I'm not working with another party for most of these episodes. Vintage Chris Vanini was unable to join us today and is usually unable to join the AEW shows. So there's not the same point counterpoint when it comes to all of the segments. And that's really the purpose of the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I will consider doing a main event for AEW and a last word at the end of the show. It does seem you guys are really into the Q&A type of thing. Uh, So that is under consideration. But right now, what we're doing from a scheduling perspective, WWE Tuesday, NXT Wednesday, AEW Thursday, it's just extremely difficult with Collision on a Saturday to figure out a better way 
to do the schedule right now so that everything is addressed with relative immediacy. And we take into consideration the fact that there's weekend pay-per-views and premium live events. I can't just not talk about AEW for a week, then they have a pay-per-view and then I do it the next week. It, it doesn't work that way. So if anyone has any other you know, creative solutions that you can think of, feel free, hit us up on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can DM, you can tweet, or you can email us gettingoverpod at gmail.com. With that said, let's actually get to the show. First, the AEW NJPW Forbidden Door fallout. And the biggest news is something that happened probably 15 minutes after our podcast went live this past Sunday when Brian Danielson and Tony Khan, I believe, also announced that Danielson broke his arm during the match with Kazuchika Okada, the dream match main event of Forbidden Door. Apparently, it happened with 10 minutes left to go in the match when Okada did that elbow drop. Danielson blamed himself. He said his arm was kind of in an awkward position. Okada landed on it, and it broke. And Bree, his wife, posted a photo on her Instagram of the x-ray of the break. Now, at Forbidden Door, during the media scrum, I forgot if it was Brian or Tony, whoever, they said six to eight weeks. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, I saw the x-ray, and I showed it to a few orthopedists who are friends of mine, and they confirmed my suspicion that is not a six or eight week injury. That is most likely a three plus month injury. So suffice to say, Danielson will not be at all in, probably not at all out either, at least as a wrestler. If he somehow makes it back for that, I have to imagine it would be in a cast and it would be extremely risky for him to do so. Super unfortunate. It is kind of fair to say at this point, it's only been two years, but Forbidden Door is kind of cursed between injuries happening on the show and others preventing matches from happening entirely. Not a great situation, um, but it's probably more coincidence, of course, than anything else. Feel terrible for Danielson. It does make a little bit more sense why the match fell off over that final 10-minute period of time. It also kind of explains the head injury shakes that he was doing. I think the purpose of that was so that the referee would come over to him and he could stall for time and decide whether he was able to continue. So he did the shakes, talked to the referee, he communicated the information. You don't need to fake you know, concussion symptoms in order for that to happen. We've seen wrestlers over decades, including recently in WWE, people have gotten injured during matches where you just call the guy over and you talk about it and the match gets delayed and then it eventually continues or doesn't continue. You don't need to fake having a serious head injury. So I maintain my take about that. I also maintain my take about the match finish because we don't know what was called on the fly. We don't know if the submission finish was improv. We don't know if the match was supposed to go longer and they just went to the finish quicker or changed the finish because Brian perhaps couldn't do what the original plan was. So the takes kind of remain the same other than to say it's really unfortunate what happened to Brian. The match did not really live up to expectations. The injury certainly played a significant role in that. But even before the injury, it wasn't really living up to expectations. So you know, I, I did go over uh, Forbidden Door. I rewatched many of the matches that I mentioned I was going to rewatch. I don't really have any changes to my grades. I thought it was an okay show. Um, AEW spent a significant amount of time, we'll actually talk about it a little bit later, praising this um, Forbidden Door on Dynamite. You know, again, we'll we'll talk about what I thought about 
them doing that in a moment or the way they did it. Not the fact that they did it, but the way they did it. Uh, we'll go over it. But long story short, um, Forbidden Door could have been better. And I think one of the primary issues inherent with the show is that you have two promoters that need to agree on creative plans while their primary focus is to protect their own guys. Now, this show, Forbidden Door, could be elevated massively if each company simply held number one contender tournaments for the other side's title and they let their champions win those matches clean. That way we don't get no build matches with undeserving or unfit challengers like Tanahashi and Jungle Boy. Think about how much more exciting it would have been if we got MJF against Tetsuya Naito and Sonata against Hangman Page. Even with the titles not being won, those guys would be the winner of tournaments. So they would go into it looking super strong. Ultimately, they would not win the titles. And with MJF, you could have him cheat. With Sonata, you could have Hangman get caught in a crucifix bomb and he just shakes Sonata's hand. Sonata puts him over and they go their separate ways. And no one's actually hurt despite losing the title matches. Yet, you have interesting television of people you know, attempting to contend for these titles and better matches on the show itself. Now look, obviously Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay cannot be matched, but look how good that was, not just in terms of their wrestling, but it had a legitimate build with a plan and an execution. I'm not suggesting that as possible for all 10 matches on the card. Have your multi-mans, have your random punk Kojima dream match that he wants to have, fine. That's fine for the lower card. But at least half of the card should have real storylines. Build four of them on AEW TV, build two of them on New Japan, their product, and use clips from those to tell the other company what is concurrently happening as you move towards this Forbidden Door pay-per-view. It really should not be that difficult. And it's frustrating that they put so much effort into, you know, last year, the, the wrestling I thought was actually better in totality at Forbidden Door. This year, of course, Omega and Osprey is better than most matches any of us have ever seen. Um, but, you know, if, if you're putting so much effort into like putting together quality matches, again, that's great as a matchmaker. But if you want to be a booker and a creative chief and you want to actually deserve the Booker of the Year award, which this guy keeps winning, um, then you need to actually book storylines. And that is what I want out of Forbidden Door next year. And hopefully they give it to us. A couple other notes before we get into breaking down the shows. AEW announced it is running not one, not two, three more shows in Chicago between now and Labor Day. As we tape this podcast, it's nearly July 1st. So in a two-month span, they're going to Chicago three more times after just running two shows there. Uh, those include Collision on Saturday, September 2nd, of course, head-to-head -head with WWE Payback, and then All Out on Pay-Per-View Sunday, September 3rd. One week, by the way, after All In at Wembley Stadium. And none of that is to mention AEW Grand Slam 3, which was announced officially for July 19th in Boston. So a lot of stuff coming up clearly, but the two more trips to Chicago, I mean... That market has to be wearing thin at this point for AEW. Like how many times are they going to go there? And do they just keep coming back? I mean, I know All Out 
traditionally is there. And they wanted to do CM Punk and his return in Chicago too. But like, what, like how soon are they going back after that? If they are gone for six or nine months, then okay, coming out. But if they're back two months or three months later, I mean, it's just gotta be an eye roll at this point where they feel like they need to run that market because it's one of the few areas where fans are consistently passionate for them. I don't really know. But with that said, let's get into breaking down everything that happened across AEW this week. I did find Collision on Saturday to be basically equal in quality to the debut episode. It did suffer from some of the same problems, the lacking storyline development, barely putting any booking together for this coming week. But considering AEW had Forbidden Door, which is a very unique show, maybe their mindset is, hey, let's kind of just do the first two weeks and put on some good wrestling. And then we'll really start the storytelling after Forbidden Door, which would mean starting this Saturday. As long as the booking gets more cohesive, that'll be nice. Rampage was back to being a throwaway show. Dynamite after Forbidden Door was a huge downer for me on Wednesday. I'll get into that in a moment. But comparing them all, uh, Collision was easily the best show of the week. It was not only more entertaining with better wrestling, in some ways it felt like I was watching a different company. Dynamite was another struggle bus for AEW following a pay-per-view. This has become a trend now. It always feels like Tony Khan is like searching in the back, seeing who's willing to work, and then just throwing them on screen, as opposed to having any type of cohesive plan for those post-pay-per-view shows. There was a specific match here that related to Forbidden Door and a storyline that happened prior, and there was a scheduled Owen Hart tournament match that didn't happen for unforeseen circumstances, but that's only two things on this entire show. And again, it just kind of feels like he's throwing these together. I find that to be strange because AEW is promoting so many things upcoming that you would think jumping right into fresh storylines would not only be easy to do, but part of the plan. And one other note before we actually break down the shows, it's quite strange that AEW is now using this identical WWE ringside setup now with a big cutout area for commentary, even when the booth is up on stage for Dynamite like it was on Wednesday. And then they also have the separate section now with the ring announcer and the timekeeper with its own, you know, like L-shaped, U-shaped barrier like around it. And look, I hated the random timekeeper's table at ringside, don't get me wrong, but watching Dynamite on Wednesday, I don't know, it just feels like they're kind of trying to look like WWE and it's still way more toned down from like an LED perspective, but I liked the visual differentiation watching AEW and I don't want AEW to feel like homogenized big league wrestling, which in many ways is what WWE's presentation feels like. They're starting to kind of look similar, not the same, but more similar. And again, the differentiation is what I liked so much about AEW's presentation. All right, all that said, let's get into it. Dynamite Collision, Rampage. Now, I'm going pretty much in order of importance here. Again, I'm open to constructive criticism. If you guys think, hey, Silver King, you should just do the shows in order unless the storylines intersect, and I should do Rampage, then Collision, then Dynamite, I will consider that. If you think Dynamite should be up front and I should clean up with Collision and Rampage, I will consider that. But right now, I'm mixing it all together and doing it in order of what I consider to be importance. So we'll kick things off with Adam Cole and MJF. So Cole first, then MJF second, pulled up in SUVs simultaneously backstage at Dynamite. 
MJF sarcastically put him over for getting sick before Forbidden Door as a brilliant move and said Cole was legitimately the closest anyone has come to taking the title from him. He suggested their team will actually work if they try, and he wanted to bro it up with Cole to really form a bond. So Cole sarcastically agreed to that. And then MJF unveiled tag team merch, better than you, Bay Bay t-shirts, as Cole shook his head and walked off. Roderick Strong later came out to the SUV area, uh, reminding Cole that he can't trust MJF, and Cole said he was just playing along. Then MJF came out, and he calls Strong right to his face, a generic white guy, which legitimately had me laughing out loud. It got a good 15-second belly laugh from me. Then MJF and Cole left in the SUV for their bonding time. So look, this was just super funny, both of the segments, okay? It succeeded in upping the animosity while simultaneously showing the beginnings of them as a team and making you think, hey, you know what? Maybe this does work. Like we know long-term in kayfabe, it's not gonna work, but this did rub me the right way. You rub me just right every week. The shirt and MJF's shot at Strong, they were like cherries on top of the entire thing. I've been trying to put my finger for weeks now on what MJF has reminded me of in this little bit he's been doing with Cole, and I figured it out last night right before bed. So Comedy Central airs endless South Park reruns, and sometimes I go to bed even later than usual. I'm like a 2 a.m. person normally, but sometimes I'll be up to like 3, 3.30, and I hate it. You should not do that. I'm okay with 1 or 2 a.m. Past that, it's a little bit ridiculous. But anyway... It's literally the only thing on television at like 3 a.m. or later. I can't even find Seinfeld reruns when I'm up that late. They have it on TV land, but I think it's only Monday and Tuesdays, and then it goes to other shitty shows. I digress. I was watching South Park last night, and I realized this version of MJF, the same one we got with Sammy Guevara recently, it's like he's summoning Eric Cartman when he's faking being nice and complimentary to people. And I now cannot get that out of my head. I enjoy this MJF so much more than the forced, cheap heat promo guy, you know, making up fake BJ in a car accident like type of stories and calling himself the devil over and over just because he's a heel wrestler who cheats. Like I remain completely intrigued by this MJF Cole pairing, even if I think the tournament itself is ridiculous, which I do. And speaking of that, we were told early during Dynamite that we would get more results from the blind draw for this tag team eliminator. That never really happened. Instead, we got a match announcement with two teams, quote unquote, randomly chosen for next week. Those, quote unquote, randomly chosen teams are Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy, who have teamed together four times on TV since May. They're on one side of a match. And then get this, Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland are on the other side. Obviously former tag team champions. And I honestly could only laugh and roll my eyes at the entirety of this booking for multiple reasons. One of which is that Cole and MJF were the first announced team yet they don't have a match. And these other two teams that have since been announced have a match. But look, if they use this, Swerve in Our Glory repairing 
to reignite the singles feud between Keith and Swerve that went ice cold due to AEW delaying and delaying and then completely forgetting about it. If that results in a major one-on-one match and it gets plenty of TV time and it finally puts an end to this nightmare at this point for good, I can maybe ultimately accept that. But think about this. This shit has gone on for so long that they're literally back together again before they ever fought one-on-one. Now, if I had to guess, perhaps they even win this match, lose the next sort of attacks and you go from there. But if this is a random one-off that does not immediately advance anything, I may lose my fucking mind. Like fair warning, this match better happen by Grand Slam or else I'm just gonna go nuts about it. But again, this tournament, it's supposed to be random. And it is possible to suspend that disbelief for one overly convenient pairing, such as MJF and Cole or Swerve and Keith Lee. But three of them, and all three of them being the first three that are announced, that ain't random, folks. Random would be like Wardlow and John Silver or Hangman Page and Swerve or Andrade El Idolo and Daddy Magic. It feels like this entire thing is an entirely poor concept just to give Cole and MJF something to do that's different before their rematch. But it's also an ill-timed concept because there's already two other tournaments ongoing. This, while nothing, by the way, is happening in the actual tag team division. So I remain immensely frustrated I think this is just completely ridiculous. On Dynamite, John Moxley fought Tomohiro Ishii. Danielson was supposed to be in this match, so Mox was the obvious replacement. Ishii was outside early with BCC surrounding him, so Eddie Kingston stormed down and grabbed a chair to get his back. Mox got busted open hard way as they threw stiff blows in a strong style match. Then they purposely butted heads so Mox would bleed more. This is the first of three big stars who bled on Dynamite, by the way. Mox hit Paradigm Shift for a false finish, plus an RKO with a total no-sell by Ishii. He's bound to do that. Um, He took that into a lariat. So Mox followed with Death Rider and a slow cover for another false finish. Then he added the Stomp, shout out Seth Rollins, and another Death Rider, and ultimately got the win. He bumped Eddie's shoulder on the way out. Kingston sarcastically cheered Mox for winning by himself, reminding that he doesn't need BCC. Then he starts following him backstage. Renee in a role as Mox's wife at this point, is reminding him and yelling at him um, about Eddie. So Kingston storms in and argues with him face to face and Renee shoots him a look and he like backs off a little bit, which I thought was very funny. Um, He reminded Mox that he got his back at Forbidden Door saying he doesn't need BCC. So then Renee yelled at Eddie further saying, you better fix this. Now look, this match was brutal and terrific, okay? We definitely got. Oh, we got two big meaty men And it was a great showing by Ishii before he goes back to Japan. Mox did look like a badass in the finish, but there were a couple spots during this match. Some of his selling, uh, a double clothesline spot where they both kind of collapsed. It was a little bit ridiculous, but I I do like these guys, so I'm kind of giving it a break. Uh, But on top of that, Kingston kept the storyline on point. I do find his argument in the story a little bit ridiculous. Like he doesn't like that Mox is with BCC, 
but he's willing to get Mox's back himself and fight for him. I guess it's the difference of a babyface friend versus a heel faction that's willing to cheat. So I get it. I'm just saying, I don't know. It it could be a little bit of a stronger reason, I guess. But Kingston's so good, it doesn't really matter. The animosity, the passion between them, it makes it work. Uh, fantastic stuff all around here. I went four stars, a minus, and I also went four slabs of beef, which I really need to start going back to the beef grades on this show. <laughs> Reinforce the ring post. The beef's going to be flying tonight, gentlemen. So on Dynamite, Hung Bucks fought Dark Order. The Elite were cutting a promo about a six-man open challenge, and Dark Order immediately came up and accepted. Hangman Page thought they wanted a 12-man tag. Could you freaking imagine? Uh, but they clarified they wanted to fight because they were angry. Hangman abandoned them as friends. Page said he was helping the Elite. They needed his help against BCC, and he's not the Dark Order's babysitter. Hangman was conflicted early in the match itself until Evil Uno just punched him square in the face. He later hesitated on a buckshot lariat and nearly got pinned by John Silver. He came back with Deadeye and the Young Bucks hit BTE trigger before he added a buckshot lariat for the win. BCC and Konosuke Takeshka attacked the elite after the bell. Dark Order surveyed the situation and decided not to help as they used a screwdriver and chairs. Uh, Hangman bladed from the screwdriver. We'll get into that momentarily. Uh, Kingston ran down to help, but got similarly murdered by Claudio, who crushed his arm in the chair as Mox completely looked the other way. Mox then grabbed the mic, saying it's time this comes to an end at Blood and Guts on July 19th in Boston. This was like the early days of AEW that just the match did not do it for me. I'm talking about the wrestling. The storytelling aspect was far more compelling than the wrestling itself, but even that was quickly overshadowed by the post-match attack. I'd call the crowd reaction to Blood and Guts positive, but muted. And this was not a good crowd. I think they were in Hamilton, Ontario on Wednesday. Very disappointing crowd. Um, The Blood and Guts announcement was hardly a surprise, nor did it come across as a big deal, mostly because it was totally obvious. And we've seen these attacks consistently from BCC. So this one wasn't special, even though I did like the brutality. But again, it was just repetitive. On Collision, CM Punk, FTR, and Ricky Starks fought Bullet Club and The Guns. Punk got a 60-40, I would say, negative reaction, which he and commentary both played into noting, hey, we're not in Chicago anymore. Uh, This got three segments and 25 minutes total for a six-man tag. Starks had a nice hot tag, and then it just got chaotic with five minutes of no tagging whatsoever. Cash Wheeler nearly killed himself on a Tope Suicida. Punk and Starks ate Uranagis from Jay White. Starks hit three spears, but Juice Robinson caught him with a loaded fist, and White beat him with Blade Runner. After the bell, all four held up guns, with the guns officially joining Bullet Club. Like I said, it was a chaotic end to a match. The rules were kind of thrown out the window. The crowd for this, I think they were still in Toronto here. I'm, I may get the city wrong, I'm sorry. But the crowd for this was the MVP of the entire thing. They were on fire from bell to bell. Commentary was actually kind of surprisingly lackluster as well. So this didn't come across to me as good as it may have live. Uh, On Dynamite, Darby Allin and Sting fought Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara in a tornado match. And I promise you folks, the Silver King has a lot to say about this. Uh, Jericho backstage said it was poetic justice for him to fight Sting on TBS with Tony Schiavone on commentary. I don't think Chris knows what poetic justice means because that ain't it. Uh, Jericho said he'd be the pain maker for the match. This started with 11 minutes left and commentary claiming, quote, Tony Khan says we will stay with this match for as long as it takes. Uh, Sting and Jericho jousted their bats. There was a really cool spot where Darby got run into steps against the barricade and his body like ricocheted 
and tumbled over them. I don't even know how he did it. Honestly, it was sick. Then two tables were set up with Sammy placed onto them and both Darby and Sting climbing either side of a ladder. Darby stood down so Sting could jump off the ladder, which was inside of the ring, over the ropes, into two tables. And so Sting jumps, and he barely hits the first table. His waist seemed to nail it on the side. His head, I think, hit Sammy's knee. I actually believe he knocked some teeth out. It was ridiculous. First of all, why were the tables not closer to the ring? I cannot come up with an explanation for that. Like, what the fuck, you know? Really, Sting should not have done this spot at all. But if you're going to do it, make it achievable. And they didn't. There was also clearly a shock factor here. But again, the dude is 64 years old. It's impressive that he's wrestling at all. He doesn't need to do shit like this. I think it was a couple years ago or a year ago where he was in an arena. It was false count anywhere or they were in the crowd and he jumped off a vom onto people and people went nuts about that. And that was crazy, but it was a calculated risk because all he was doing was basically falling forward. There wasn't anywhere for him to go. There were like six people down there to catch him. It was done in as safe a way as it possibly could have done. This was fucking ridiculous. He does not need to do shit like this. This final chapter of Sting's career, it has been a treat, a nice ride. We're getting more than I ever would have imagined that we're getting from Sting. And I'm glad that AEW gave him the chance and he was willing to go there and do it. But this is too much, okay? It is time to hang it up and it's time to call it a career. Come on, this is, it's a joke, right? It's a joke, Goose. You ripping me? Now back to the match. Jericho bladed after taking a skateboard shot. You may say, hey, Silver King, how do you know that he bladed? Because the skateboard seemed to have barbed wire or something on it. Well, I know he bladed because the camera literally zoomed in on him as he was gigging himself. Immensely sloppy production work. And it happened earlier in the show where Rick Knox blatantly pulled out a blade, ran around the ring, and slid it into Hangman Page so he could blade. Twice in one show. Fuck, man. So Darby went for a springboard coffin drop. Jericho drilled him in the back with the skateboard. Then he hit Judas Effect, which knocked Darby out of the ring. Sting came too, and Shivani had a second aneurysm of the night. Jericho put Sting in walls of Jericho, so he pushed to the corner, grabbed his bat, hit Jericho in the head. Sting then hit a stinger splash, but he ate a code breaker trying a second one. Then he avoided Judas effect, hitting Scorpion Death Drop, then locking Jericho in the Scorpion Death Lock for the submission victory. And yes, to AEW's credit, they actually went one to two minutes long. So they did pay off that one day after I said, NXT actually does it and never tells you about it. AEW tells you about it, never actually does it. So they did go a minute or two long. Now, this was the main event of Dynamite. And look, I will say the star power mixed with some of the planned spots, it made it worthwhile in that spot. And despite all of the criticisms I just gave you, it actually was a super entertaining match. I mean, I was scared for Sting, 
But other than that, I found it immensely enjoyable. Uh, Sammy completely disappeared in the match finish after the failed table spot. It's possibly hurt himself, but I think the idea was just to that to have that knock him out. But really, the whole idea of Jericho and Sammy teaming these last couple of weeks was to create further animosity between them. And that wasn't part of either match story, really. I mean, Jericho did yell at him to do the 630 or whatever it was, uh, the senton, I think it was a 630 senton at Forbidden Door. And he did it. We talked about how that kind of got botched because Sting couldn't get off the table. Again, another situation was Sting, Sammy and a table twice in a row. But they didn't play into that. They didn't really talk about that on the show. So look, this was far better than the six man at Forbidden Door. Don't get it twisted. The crowd was hot for it. It was one of the few things the crowd really got up for. But the ladder and the table spot was such a huge negative that, yeah, man, it hurts the match and it hurts your enjoyment of it. It just does. I don't want to be scared for a 64-year-old man when I'm watching wrestling. On Collision, Andrade El Idolo fought Brody King. There was a great Death Valley driver spot with King driving Andrade into the corner. A cannonball followed. Andrade took out his knee and put in a figure four, but Julia Hart distracted, holding Andrade's mask. So he just released the hold like a dumb baby face. Then he hit a back elbow and just put the figure four right back in with a woo. As he went to move to a figure eight, Buddy Matthews attacked for a disqualification. And then he got hit with a gonzo bomb from Brody. Malachi Black then appeared on screen, didn't say anything, and Julia held the mask high. It was a great match spoiled by a really stupid finish. I actually have no problem with the disqualification itself, just the execution of it. Andrade in a babyface role, it's interesting. The presumption has to be that Rouge and someone else link alongside him and they become trios challengers sooner than later. I mean, that's what you would have to think happens here. And that would be an incredible match if they actually get to it. On Collision, Miro said he's been in exile for a year, and in that time he realized the Redeemer kneels before no one, and he must now be righteous without seeking reward. So he renounced his God, his gold, and his beautiful wife. I'm not sure why renouncing his wife was necessary, but the other one's okay. He ended saying, I am Miro, and I am gutless, which gutless is a bad thing. Like, it means you lack courage. Unless he meant guiltless, which would make more sense. But I don't think that's what he said. I'm 95% sure he said, he said gutless. That's a strange taped promo. It was really weird. On Collision, Christian Cage and Luchasaurus were interviewed with Christian holding the TNT title the entire time. Uh, he got hometown chance at first before turning on them to get a ton of cheap heat. Yeah, all your sports teams, they're all failures. Unlike that promo, this was actually a good promo, of course. Uh, but it went on and on. It really dragged. Christian said title challenges will not be open but earned. He took a random shot at Cody Rhodes for creating the TNT title as a vanity project, which was odd and it was unnecessary. Get a life, kid. And then he wrapped it up with Luchasaurus putting him on his shoulders and, you know, celebrating again. I saw people thrilled about this promo, calling it great. I thought it was mediocre for Christian. It did at least get across the story of him stealing the spotlight in the title reign, but we'll see how that even transpires. Speaking of mediocre or worse promos on Dynamite, Jungle Boy cut off his own music and cut a heel promo with his hair tied up while wearing a leather jacket and sunglasses. Classic heel. Uh, he said he's got a car waiting to take him to the airport while fans are stuck with the wildfires. Good one, man. Uh, he said he's cashing fat checks and banging the hottest bitch in AEW. 
Another good one, bro. He mistakenly referred to Hamilton as Toronto, which finally got booze. He said Hook was lucky to ever team with him, and he wanted to take the FTEW title, not just from him, but his family. So Hook then entered, chased him through the crowd, all the way through the backstage area, and Jungle Boy dove into an SUV that just so happened to have its door open, and then it drove off. I will say, him running into the car, that sequence was a lot of fun. It was hilarious. But that was 5% of this overall segment. You couldn't get over it. They keep talking about Jungle Hook in AEW like it was some type of long-term successful tag team and they had this really close-knit friendship. I looked it up because I wanted to confirm my suspicion. They have wrestled together a grand total of three times, twice in January and once in June. We just talked about Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy being thrown together as a random tag team. They've wrestled more together in the last few months than these guys have ever. And two of their three times teaming, again, were in January, seven months ago, six plus months ago. This promo was an abject failure as far as I was concerned. Fans booed because they were supposed to, but it was as try hard as I can remember. Just because turning him heel was the right decision based on basically his failures as a baby face, it doesn't mean he's going to work as a heel. There's a good chance he figures it out, okay? But as a starting point, this went over like a wet fart. On Rampage, the acclaimed and daddy ass fought a couple jobbers. After the faces won on a squash, the fake Miss Hancock came out with two dudes in white masks dancing. She got an appropriate Who Are You chant. Apparently her name is Holly Cameron, and she wanted to write a hit song for them. She started singing and it was quick, but I actually thought she sounded okay. Then she rapped and I actually thought she was pretty good at that too. I got to say, I was pleasantly surprised by that. Uh, But when she made a pass at Anthony Bowens, he reminded, quote, I'm gay. So then daddy ass hugged him and fans gave a loud he's gay chant, which was really touching in the moment for Bowens. So look, like not to be a party pooper, okay? It kind of felt like this was put into existence, like they did this segment to get that reaction for him during Pride Month. Like, I'm not saying that the reaction from the crowd wasn't genuine. It was, and I loved it. And it meant so much to him. And I'm sure it meant a ton to a lot of other people. So the moment was great, but it just felt like it was kind of put into existence by them having Cameron say that, having Daddy Ass hug him, having Bowen say that. Like, it just kind of... Felt like they were directing the crowd to do uh, to have a moment, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, the other QTV jackasses distracted. And then John Morrison unveiled himself from under one of the masks. He super kicked daddy ass. Then Cameron said, suck it. So this was like 50% awesome and 50% whatever. It was a really special moment for Bowens. But again, it just kind of felt like it was directed and dictated to the crowd that this is what you're now going to do. Further proof of that was AEW like replaying the chant on Dynamite. But again, I want to be very clear. It was a touching, freaking great moment for Bowens. And again, a lot of fans out there, it just felt manufactured. On Dynamite, QT Marshall and Johnny TV, that's actually the name he's using now, cut a 10-second promo backstage about fighting the Hardys on Rampage. Hardy and I think uh, one of the private party guys. Why aren't they fighting the acclaimed? And by the way, while I'm bitching, 
They're also doing an ROH title match on Rampage. I thought we were holding those titles for Ring of Honor shows now that it had its own program on streaming. Anyway, on Dynamite, Orange Cassidy, Alijo, Del, Vikingo, Keith Lee, they teamed up in a six-man to fight Daniel Garcia and 2.0. Commentary spoke over 30 seconds of a 60-second video package that was supposed to, and I believe probably did, explain the match. But really, there was no explanation. Uh, Keith also dyed his hair again, which kind of flies in the face for all the huffing and puffing he and others were doing about it on social media. The fact that he was showing his gray hair and people said it looked old, but now he's just dyed it back anyway. I couldn't tell if it was bad black dye or if he dyed it blue, but it had a really weird, odd kind of color tinge to it. Uh, Vikingo did a tope completely into Keith, his own partner, who barely saved him from disaster. Eventually, Keith hit Big Bang Catastrophe on Daddy Magic for the win. It was really sloppy. Commentary chalked that up to a lack of chemistry for a new team, and that was a really good cover by commentary. But it was a rough match given the talent on the babyface side. And again, maybe there was like a very short storyline reason for the match happening, but there was no real reason to do a six-man like this. On Rampage, Sky Blue fought Anna JAS in an Owen quarter final. The JAS guys distracted throughout. Anna hit a backstabber and gory bomb, but Sky escaped Queen Slayer and won with Code Blue. Clunky match, but we got the right winner and they got a good amount of time. It was nice to see uh, Sky continue to get a consistent push, even though she lost that title match. On Dynamite, we had Ruby Soho against Alexia Nicole. Now, Ruby was supposed to fight Britt Baker in another Owen quarterfinal match. But despite Cole being back healthy, she was ruled out presumably with the same illness that he contracted that kept him out of Forbidden Door. So that match is gonna happen next week, which makes it obvious that Baker's going to win. Otherwise, they would have just subbed her out and put someone else in the field this week. Now, instead of putting any of the other talented women on the roster in the lone women's match on the show, they chose a local jobber. So Soho grabbed a rubber glove from the referee, mocked Britt, and won with Lockjaw. The outcast then sprayed Nicole after the bell, and Soho blamed Canada for making Baker sick. Soho said rookies get whatever they want, so Baker will be able to fight her next week. Britt's not a rookie. Soho then said Baker's kids with Cole will be ugly and that she doesn't have fans. She has a ton of fans. Ruby then said that she'd leave her with nothing after next week. Imagine having an entire roster and this not only being the lone match on the show, but the lone segment involving women. At least sometimes when there's only one women's match, which is every week, they have another segment involving women. None of that. Soho's promo I thought was weird as hell. It was 50% great because she can talk and 50% ridiculous because some of the things she was saying were not based in reality. Block at zero. Couple more things uh, from Collision. Scorpio Sky backstage reintroduced himself by running down his AEW resume, saying he did all of that as a shell of himself. And now fans will get to see who he truly is. I thought it was a nice promo. And then Powerhouse Hobbs beat a jobber with a spine buster and a squash. He did also have a cool sequence of lariats at one point. Hobbs just, he remains physically impressive, but they totally botched his title reign and he's just stuck in no man's land character wise. So we'll see what happens with him going forward. So folks, that was this past week across Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite. Clearly some huge positives, but also, yes, a lot of frustrations that I had to clarify because you know, I went into Dynamite, again, let me be very clear. 
I was on a high. I didn't necessarily love Forbidden Door, at least not as much as others, but I loved Collision. And I, I thought, wow, Collision's running hot. And that's despite them not really telling stories. Dynamite, show after Forbidden Door, they got to build to all in, which is a huge deal. They're in Canada. The crowd's going to be hot. They'll come up with a couple good matches and they'll make the show worthwhile. And yeah, look, Mox Ishii, good match. Uh, the Jericho and Sammy against Darby and Sting outside of the Sting situation, good entertaining match. But the show just kind of felt messy and odd and ill-fitting. Um, again, the MJF Cole thing, which happened entirely in a parking lot, I thought was the best thing that we got on the entire show. It was hysterical and super, super entertaining. But folks, like I said, that wraps up this week in AEW. We do have a lot still coming your way on Saturday. We will be back with your WWE Money in the Bank Instant Reaction podcast. We will have a live show on Twitter Spaces earlier in the day, so be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for that. After Saturday, we'll be back Tuesday with our next WWE show. We'll discuss fallout from WWE Money in the Bank, everything that happened on SmackDown that did not relate to that premium live event, and of course, the Raw after the big show. Then on Wednesday, we will have your NXT edition, and next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel, we'll be back to talk AEW. On the way out, the reminders, as always, I already kind of said it, so hey, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights. You get to join our live show on Twitter Spaces this Saturday for WWE Money in the Bank, and you get to vote in our pre- and post-show polls, which will impact our coverage on that MITB Instant Reaction show. Also, please remember... It's all about the five. It is all about the five here on Getting Over. So head to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings. If you leave a five-star review on Apple, a written review, that is, we will read it live right here on the show. I happen to love the number five. And I do indeed love that number. I hope you do as well. For only $5 a month, you can become an official Getting Overhead. You can get bonus audio, news posts, and you can support the Silver King and Vintage as this show continues. We appreciate you all so much for being loyal listeners here at the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. If you're brand new to the show over the last couple of weeks, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. At this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.